Well, good morning. Glad that you guys made it up here. Uh, this is a lot of new things uh, happening the, this morning. Uh, as has been said, we're going to baptize some people here. Uh, Panorama Room, we're here this morning. If you're part of Salt Company, our college ministry, this is home for you guys, where you meet every Tuesday. Uh, if you're not part of Salt Company, congratulations. You found uh, your way up here. Uh, also, this is a family Sunday. Uh, so for kiddos in the room, uh, we want to welcome you. You're not the church of tomorrow. You're the church of today. You're over Always welcome in this room, but from time to time, we'll do family Sundays uh, to remind ourselves uh, that the next generation is important. We're also going to kick off a brand new teaching series this morning. Uh, but before I get to all that, let me actually introduce myself. My name is uh, Jonathan Randall. I'm one of the pastors on staff. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, uh, we're so glad that you did make it here. Uh, as I said, we are going to kick off a brand new teaching series. We're going to be covering our vision, our mission, and our rhythms. Who, who are we as Salt Church? Why do we exist? What's our plan? Uh, What do we want to see happen in the future? This is where our vision and our mission and our rhythms come into play. So let me uh, give you a quick rundown of these. Our vision is to glorify God by multiplying disciples and churches to reach the next generation. That is our, that's our, where we want to go. That's where we see Salt Church in 20 to 30 years. That's our preferred reality. When we look into the future, that's what we see happening. How are we going to get there is our mission. That's the path we're taking to get to our vision. And our mission is this, to make disciples who love God and love others. If we want to have a multiplicative movement of disciples being made, then disciples are made one at a time. What's our weekly steps down the path of our mission to get to our vision? Our, that's where our rhythms come into play. And we have two basic rhythms. You take steps, one and, and two at a time. Uh, and so we have two rhythms. Uh, we're going to gather here on Sunday to make much of Jesus. And then we're going to scatter throughout the week, primarily in what we call home groups. If you're a part of Salt Company, you didn't know it, but they mirror the same thing we do on a Sunday and throughout the week. You guys meet on Tuesday, you gather, and then you meet throughout the week in connection groups. It's the same rhythms for you guys as well. So that's kind of where we're going uh, over the next three weeks, our vision, our mission, and our rhythms. And it's my uh, privilege this morning, we're going to unpack our vision. But before we get there, uh, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Father, uh, there is so much to be excited about this morning. God, there's so many things you are doing in this uh, church. Uh, God, from the kiddos in the room to the baptisms that are going to happen, uh, God, to this new teaching series, God, I pray that you would lead our church God, that we would be a beacon of hope to a city that desperately needs to know who you are. We ask that your word would speak to us this morning, and it's in your son's mighty name that we pray. Amen. All right, so our vision again. It's to glorify God by multiplying disciples and churches to reach the next generation. To glorify God by multiplying disciples and churches to reach the next generation. Now, why preach on this? Why, why does this even matter for us as a church. Well, the truth is, if we are not clear on our vision as a church, then it will be very easy for us to go off course as a church. If we're not clear about the vision, we can go off course from what we should be as a church. And if you don't believe me, just look at the YMCA as an example, right? The YMCA started in the late 1800s in England by a guy named George Williams who wanted to reach young men in the city of London with the gospel. I mean, the the acronym YMCA literally stands for Young Men Christian Association. 
right? But if you were to walk into a YMCA today, you would never know that, right? In fact, the acronym has been condensed to just the Y. Now, how did that happen? How, how did they drift so far from who they are? Because they didn't have a board meeting one day where the executives were like, you know what? This whole Jesus thing is too hard. Let's just teach people to play pickleball and do yoga and eat kale. And that's what will be as the Y. That's not how the YMCA got to that place. What happened was is they took their eyes off the vision of what they were called to be. And over time, the YMCA drifted away from what it set out to be. And guys, here's the, the brutal truth. This happens with churches all of the time. Guys, I've seen churches that have set out to preach the gospel and to make disciples. And over time, they slowly drift from that and they turn into a community center filled with programs that only want to make people moral and good citizens of our country. I've seen churches that have a heart to make an impact in the city. They are outward facing. And then over time, they become inward facing and they turn into infighting and they complain over insignificant things like the color of the carpet or the worship style. Guys, I've seen churches who used to preach the gospel and they cave to the pressures of the world and they slowly move away from the scriptures and they let the world determine their vision rather than the word of God. And here's the reality. We are not immune as a church to that happening to us. If the Bible teaches me anything about the people of God, it's that they constantly forget the vision that God has for them. The truth is we are no different, guys. Our, our vision for who we are can get blurry because we forget what is true so easily. Our vision can easily get displaced because our eyes are on different things other than what Jesus has called us to. Our, our vision can even get replaced with a smaller, lesser vi vision or a version of our vision that just doesn't require any faith. And so this morning, guys, I want to call our hearts to a vision, and it is a big vision. And it's not just my vision, and it's not just Keith's vision, and it's not just the staff team's vision. It's our vision as a church. And my hope is that we can paint a picture of this vision together that is so large, so captivating, so, so uh, uh, big that we will chase, and so compelling that we will chase after it together as a church. So with that said, let's break down our vision this morning. I'm going to cover it in three parts, to glorify God, to multiply disciples, and to reach the next generation. Let's take a look at that first part of our vision, to glorify God. Let's glorify God. So Psalm 115 says this, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Okay, so if we're gonna glorify God, if that's part of our vision, then it's kind of important that we know what the word glory means, right? I feel like the word glory in the church is a filler word. We just put it in our songs and we sing about the glory of God, but we really don't know what it's talking about. Like, how do you define the word glory? So let me give some handles on this. Guys, the word glory in Hebrew is the word kabod, and it actually means weight or mass, right? But the word glory is often used metaphorically to refer to something that is significant or that matters or is important. 
Think of it like this. The sun has glory in the sense that the sun weighs a lot. It's massive, right? Uh, In fact, you can fit a million planet Earths inside the sun. That's how big it is. It has a gravitational pull that pulls in our entire solar system. It has glory in the sense that it has weight, but it also has glory in the sense that the sun is kind of significant. It's kind of important. Without it, life doesn't exist on this planet, and we spin off into the galaxy, right? If we put this together then, to give glory means to ascribe weight to something. It means to say that this is important, this matters, this is significant in my life, it's a big deal, so much so that I'm willing to revolve my life around it in many ways the same way the planets revolve around the sun. And so when we give God glory, we're saying God is the one that's significant, he's the one that matters, he is the one that we're gonna revolve our life around. But why is this in our vision? And why is it first? I think the reason we put it in our vision is because it's so easy to forget. I remember when we came up with this vision, this was actually Keith's idea to put the glory of God into our vision. Initially, I was like, why would we put that in there? Like, doesn't that make sense? As a church, like, that's just obvious that we want to give glory to God. Why would we put it in our vision? And I think I'm so, or I don't think, I know, I'm so grateful uh, that Keith uh, pushed to uh, have this as part of our vision because, guys, the thing about the glory of God is it's not obvious to always give glory to God. Why do you think the Bible says over and over and over and over again to give glory to God? The scriptures never assume that we're just gonna naturally give glory to God. It calls us over and over and over again to do that, guys, because so easily and so often we wanna give glory to lesser things. We wanna give glory elsewhere to things other than God, to things that are small and unimportant that don't matter. Guys, in many ways, we are like a camera operator at a Kansas City Chiefs football game, right? What's the most important thing at a football game? It's the game. It's the players on the field. That's where the glory belongs. And you know where I'm going with this because every 2.5 minutes at a Kansas City Chiefs football game, that camera operator turns up into the boxes and shows Taylor Swift, someone who doesn't matter, someone that's not significant, someone that's not part of the game. Taylor Swift is a glory hog. I said it. And if you're a Swifty fan, you can email your complaints to Keith at saltchurchgreeley.org. Guys, the truth is, it's so easy to want to give glory to lesser things, to put our eyes on things that don't matter. That's why Psalm 115.1 says, two times, not to us, not to us, be the glory, but to your name, be the glory. Why does it say it twice? because we need to be reminded how easy it is to give glory to things other than God. And guys, perhaps the number one thing we want to give glory to is ourselves. In fact, this is where the rest of the psalm goes. After uh, the verse one, the psalmist is going to talk about uh, making idols. Uh, He says that in, in verse four, he says, idols are the work of human hands. And then in verse eight, he says that those who make idols, those who trust in them, they become just like them. And I find that fascinating, guys, because he doesn't kick off the Psalms, or the Psalm 15, saying, not to idols, not to idols be the glory. What does he say? He says, not to us, not to us. Why does he say it that way? Because, guys, essentially, whenever we give glory to an idol, we're really giving glory to ourselves. 
And here's why that's so crucial when it comes to our vision, guys. Because at the end of the day, it is so easy to make this church an idol. And we give glory to ourselves and what we're accomplishing rather than what God is doing and accomplishing in our midst. Because this happens all the time in churches. We give glory to how good our worship is. We give glory to how good our leadership is. We give glory to how big and relevant our church is. We give glory to our leadership. And, and, and here's what happens. Before you know it, you begin to trust in yourself rather than trusting in God. And when you give glory to yourself rather than giving glory to God, when a church begins to give glory to itself rather than giving glory to God, you eventually become about promoting and protecting your own brand rather than promoting the name of Jesus Christ. And as a church, that's what we want to be about. Let me say this as boldly as I can. We are not here to make a name for Salt Church. We are not here to make a name for Salt Company. One day, Salt Church is going to close its doors, and one day, Salt Company is going to cease to exist and not be relevant. But you know what's going to always be around? The name of Jesus. You know what name's always going to be praised forever? The name of Jesus. Do you know what matters in the end? The name of Jesus. Amen? That's what we want to be about as a church. So what does this look like for us as a church? How will we glorify God? I think one thing that we can do as a church is to celebrate each other. And so many churches criticize each other. So many churches are not quick to celebrate what God is doing in people's lives. So many churches don't show honor to each other. You want to show, uh, show me a church that is glorifying God? Show me a church that honors each other. I love this quote from Ray Ortland. He's a pastor in Nashville. This will be on the screen. He writes this. Romans 12.10 says this, outdo one another in showing honor. I wonder if that verse is one of the most under-obeyed commands in Scripture. I wonder if we have lowered our standard to this. Do no harm to one another, which is passive. And if we're not destroying each other, then we must be doing okay. But guys, the gospel is all about the glory of God coming down on sinners. Honor to one another is an obvious next step. The doctrine of glorification creates a culture of honor. Our faithfulness to the gospel, therefore, should prompt people to say about our churches how they honor one another. Additionally, what does this mean for you? How will you glorify God personally? I think this starts with taking inventory of how you spend your time. How do you spend your time, talents, and treasure, right? Where do you go? What are you gifted at? How do you give? You can tell uh, how you're glorifying God by the way you spend your time, talents, and treasure, right? Do I live for my career or my kid's career or my lever or kid's sports career or am I leveraging those things for the glory of God? Do, do I use my gifts to serve others or to give glory to myself? Do I spend my money in such a way that enhances the glory of God or spend my money in, in such a way that enhances my own lifestyle? If you, if you really want to be bold, ask somebody to take inventory of your own life and ask, hey, would you look at my life and see how I spend my time, talents, and treasures? Because here's the thing I've, I've noticed about self-assessment. You'll either fall into one of two ditches. Either you're gonna be uh, way too hard on yourself, or you are going to give your, yourself a pass at everything you do. And so we need other people in our lives to not only encourage us, 
when we feel like we're just messing up everywhere, but we also need people to point out our blind spots when we just wanna give ourselves a pass on everything. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. As a church, that's what we wanna do. The second part of our vision is to multiply disciples in churches. To multiply disciples in churches. To unpack this, I actually wanna look at the church in Antioch. Uh, The passage you heard uh, read uh, out of Acts 12 is a great passage, but I'm actually gonna be reading out of Acts 13. So I'll flip over there and read the first three verses. I wanna just take, uh, I wanna use the church in Antioch as a case study. I wanna look at them and say, hey, how did they multiply disciples? How did they multiply churches? So let's look at how they first get planted. Uh, Acts, I'm actually gonna go back to Acts 11, and then we'll go to 13. Acts 11, 19 through 30. says this. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching, in, uh, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a man of good faith, or for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went up to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So real quick, what I wanna see is four things in this text. This is the church of Antioch. This is how they get planted. First thing I want us to see is that this whole church starts because people preach the gospel. You see that over and over and over and over again. They preach the gospel. But also notice they don't stop there. Barnabas comes from Jerusalem and encourages them to remain faithful. Guys, that's spiritual growth, right? And then next, notice that this is the first time people are called Christians. That's not singular, that's plural. That means they have a group identity. There's a community that exists, right? And then lastly, there's a mission going on. Not only do you have people that are scattered sharing the gospel with people uh, that are Jews, but you have people from Cyrene and Cyprus sharing the gospel, and people are getting saved. Barnabas is sharing the gospel. People are getting saved. Saul comes, who's the apostle Paul. He shares the gospel. Guys, that's mission. What do you have here? You have gospel, growth, community, and mission. What are those? If you're familiar with Salt Church, those are our core values. Guys, we didn't get those core values because Keith and I are just so smart. We just read our Bibles. And we said, these are the things that are happening in the early church. We didn't come up with these in a vacuum. We're looking at them in the church. And so those values of gospel, growth, community, and mission, they, they define everything we do from our vision to our mission to our rhythms. But guys, those values also mark what a disciple is. If we want to be a church that multiplies disciples, then we need to know what a disciple is. How do you know if you've actually made one? I would argue a disciple is someone who knows the gospel, is spiritually growing, is engaged in community, is living on mission, 
Gospel, growth, community, mission, our four core values, guys, that is what defines a disciple. It's our scorecard. So we didn't plant this church because we think the church down the street is doing it wrong. <laughs> we didn't plant this church because uh, we like starting new things or because we wanted to offer a church for people who were living in Greeley but traveling to Fort Collins. No, we planted this church, guys, because we want to make disciples of Jesus, period. And the truth is, guys, making disciples and church planting, they go hand in hand. These aren't opposed to one another. They work with each other. If, if you want to make disciples, if you want to multiply disciples, you need to plant churches because that's the most holistic, effective way to make disciples is by planting a church. And if you want to plant a church, you better be making disciples or you're not going to end up with a church. They go hand in hand. So let's see how the church in Antioch plants churches. I'm going to read uh, Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. It says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucis of Cyrene, uh, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. If you flip over to chapter 14, the end of that chapter, this is the end of their journey of Paul and Barnabas. It says in verse 24 to the end of the chapter of uh, chapter 14. Then they passed through Peseda and came to Pamphylia. There, there we go, that works. Uh, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atlea, and from there they sailed to Antioch, that's where they started, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Guys, what was the work that they did? What was the work that the, this church in Antioch did? What, what did God do with them? They planted churches. If you read verse, or chapters 13 and 14, you'll see Paul and Barnabas get sent out from this church in Antioch. They go through cities like Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Perga and Cyprus, and they plant churches in all of these cities. Now, here's the sobering truth. Not a single one of those churches exists today. There is no first Christian church of Derby. There is no Our Lady of Lystra Catholic Church, right? There's, the church in Antioch doesn't even exist. And yet, because of these early churches, guys, there's now 2.1 billion Christians on planet Earth right now. How is that possible if these churches don't exist? It's because they knew that the, 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 the early church knew that it wasn't just about planting one church. It was about all the churches that came after them. It was about planting and multiplying churches. And here's the reality, guys. In order for the gospel to go forth, the gospel has to go farther or it's never going into the future. And the reality is, if we are like the early church and we are, there's going to be a day when Salt Church will close its doors. I hope that doesn't happen for decades. But before Salt Church closes its door, my prayer is that we open a thousand other doors for churches to be multiplied and the gospel to go even further, even farther, and into the future. 
What does this mean for us as a church? How do we multiply disciples in churches? I think the most significant thing we can do is pray. Guys, our prayer lives are, 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 is our scorecard for saying, this is how much we depend on the Spirit. Guys, notice this church sent their pastors away. They sent their best leaders to go plant this church. How can they do that? It's because their prayer life, and in their prayer life, they knew they were dependent on the Spirit. They knew they would be okay with sending Paul and Barnabas away because they had the Holy Spirit to guide them. Guys, the, the, the history of the church is the history of answered prayer. If you are a disciple of Jesus in this room, you're here because of somebody else's answered prayer. Are we praying as a church? Because we have two prayer gatherings. One meets here on Sunday morning at 8.30 in the morning. I would encourage you to come pray with us that God might move in our midst. Another one is on Thursday mornings at 5 a.m. for you early birds. Man, if, guys, it, as, we are dead in the water if we don't pray. This is a vision that we can't accomplish on our own. We must cry out to the Lord in prayer. What does this mean for you personally? How do you multiply disciples and churches? Well, let me just ask the question, are you being discipled? Are the four core values, the gospel, growth, community, and mission, a part of your life? Have you believed the gospel? Are you spiritually growing? Are you in community where you're learning to love and be loved? Are you on mission sharing the gospel? If, if you are, then you're on the way to becoming a disciple. Additionally, are you discipling others? Because if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, that means you need to do what he did. And what did Jesus primarily do with the three years he did ministry? He made disciples. And to be helpful this morning, I want to tell you about these things called discipleship groups. Real quick, I think we have a slide uh, up on the screen for this as well. Um, but you can, uh, to access a discipleship group guide, you can go to this website. Uh, we do have limited physical copies at our welcome table downstairs, or you can pull out your phone right now, scan that QR code. Guys, we've made this so easy. You just get together with two to three people of the same gender, and you walk through this guide. And what this guide does is it brings the four core values of gospel, community, growth, and mission, and it asks, how do we implement these things in our lives? There's some questions that you can answer. There's some time you can get together. And then the beautiful thing is be in this group for six months to a year and then go start it over again. And guess what happens when you do that? A multiplicative effect is, a, is going to begin to happen because if you disciple two to three people and then they go off and disciple two to three people, you didn't just make one disciple. You made like six, 10, 20 disciples as it begins to scatter out. We have a vision to glorify God, and we want to do so by multiplying disciples and churches. The last part of our vision is this, to reach the next generation, to reach the next generation. I'm going to go back to the book of Psalm and read 71 verse 18. It says this, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Guys, what I love about the writer of Psalms, uh, or the writer of Psalm 71 uh, here, is that he doesn't want to just stay alive so that he can enjoy retirement. He doesn't want to just stay alive so that he can find internal peace. He doesn't want to just stay alive so he can grow up and get married and have kids. Why does he want to live long? Is because he cares about the next generation knowing who God is. Is that your heart? Is that your vision? Now, does this mean we don't care about people uh, who are old enough to get senior discounts? No, 
We, we care about everyone. In fact, one of the things we'll say here at Soul Church often is that it takes every generation to reach the next generation. Every single one of you in here has a role to play. On uh, May 20th in the year 2000, uh, there was a gathering of 40,000 college students in Memphis, Tennessee. They were meeting outside in a field where it was cold and rainy, and it was known as the Passion Conference. Uh, I guess it still is the Passion Conference, but it was the fourth annual Passion Conference. So it was really relatively young in its uh, formation. And up to the stage walks this small little man who wasn't known at the time by the name of John Piper. And he begins to deliver a sermon. And nine minutes into the sermon, his notes blow away. And he improvises for the next 40 minutes his message. And what he shares changes an entire generation of people. There are, there are hordes and hordes of people who will look back to this sermon as a defining moment in their lives. And I'd like to read a little bit of it to you this morning. This is John Piper speaking at the Passion Conference. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Ellison and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old as well and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes give way, over the cliff they go, and they're gone, killed instantly. And I asked my people, this was his church, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from the Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you to not buy it. With all my heart, I pray that you would not buy that American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells at the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a nice swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. Because what I love about that sermon is not that it introduced me to John Piper. What I love about that sermon is that it introduced me to two ladies, Ruby Ellison and Laura Edwards. These two ladies in their 80s, they would never know the impact that their story being shared through John Piper would have on an entire generation behind them. And I so desperately want that to be my legacy. I so desperately want that to be the legacy of this church, that we don't just drift that we don't just coast, that we're not just looking for comfort, but that we would dig in our feet and to our last breath, tell one more generation about Jesus Christ. So church, if we don't want a wasted life, I can think of no better vision than to leverage everything we've got to bring the gospel to the next generation. What does this mean for us as a church? How are we gonna reach the next generation? 
two things that we value here at Salt Church. One is we're pro-college. We are pro-college uh, campuses, um, and we're pro-UNC. I could show you so many movements and so many revivals that have happened throughout church history that were started by college students and young age, uh, college age people. Guys, the, just look at the disciples of Jesus Christ, that most of them were, uh, scholars agree, were 18 to 21. We believe that college students are going to shape the world to come. Why not shape them by the gospel now? 90% of people who come to know Jesus do so before the age of 30. Why would we not fish where there's fish? Additionally, we are pro-family. We don't view our kids' ministry that we have here as babysitting. That is a discipleship moment that is happening that comes alongside parents and their desire to disciple their own kids. These family Sundays that we do are not just to give breaks to our kids ministry workers. We believe that kids being in this room, seeing their parents worship Jesus and other adults worship Jesus is one of the best things for their spiritual growth. What does this mean for you personally? How will you reach the next generation? Guys, one of the best things you can do is find someone that's younger than you and share your story. One of the best things you can do if you're younger is go find someone older and ask them to share their story with you. Notice in this Psalm, he proclaims, he tells, he praises, he reminds. He's vocal about what God has done in his life. Are you vocal about what God has done in your life? Get lunch, get coffee with somebody in this room who's younger or older than you and share your story and watch what God might do. Let me close with this. What I find fascinating about this Psalm, guys, is it's actually a lament. If you read it, this guy has troubles all around him. And yet, what is he thinking of? It's not his own burdens. Rather, he's thinking about babies who aren't even born yet, that they might have a chance to hear the gospel. See, life for this psalmist is overwhelming, and yet he's overwhelmed with reaching the next generation. How's that possible? How does he get strength for this? It makes me think of church today because we often talk about burnout. We often talk about lack of strength as well, that we're, we're too busy uh, to serve. Uh, we're just in, in, in a season of life where we can't serve. We're too tired. Uh, we're too ig- exhausted, right? And we, we just don't have the strength to pour out into the church. And hear me, that's, that's totally real. I'm not denying that. But I'm also not convinced that people get burned out because they're too tired or too exhausted or too busy. I'm convinced that people get burned out in the church because their vision is too small. Their vision lacks faith. Their vision is not on the right things. Guys, if anyone was too tired, if anyone was too exhausted, if anyone was too busy, if anyone lacked strength, it was Jesus. Jesus was the epitome of burnout. He's literally in a garden right before he's gonna die and he's praying to the Lord, let this cup pass for me. I don't wanna go to the cross. He's so anxious and stressed, he's sweating drops of blood. And yet where were his eyes? What was the vision of Christ in that moment? Flip over to Hebrews and you'll see that the scriptures say that his vision was the joy set before him. It was a joy where he would see the Father again. It was a joy where he would see all of us find salvation. It was a joy where he would see Satan on the run and vanquished. And it's because Jesus had this grand vision for the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross even when he lacked strength, even when he was tired, even when he was exhausted. How does the psalmist face the hardship that he has with his vision intact? It's because his eyes are ultimately on God. If we've got any shot of glorifying God, 
by multiplying disciples and churches to reach the next generation, guys, it doesn't happen by looking to our own strength. It's getting our eyes off ourselves and putting our vision fixed on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that this vision would be more than just words on a paper and text on a a website somewhere or if we ever get a building one day, words slapped on a wall with paint. I pray that they would be the thing that is at the core of who we are, that it would change everything of who we are. God, to glorify God, why do we exist? To glorify him. Oh God, I pray that we would revolve our entire lives around his glory. And God, as we step out in faith, God, we don't wanna just be a one and done church. We don't wanna just make one disciple. We wanna see disciples multiplied. We wanna see the church go out. God, we know we're, we're using limited time and we're on borrowed time here. So God, allow us to leave a legacy to the next generation that in order for the gospel to go forth, it has to go farther or it's never gonna go into the future. And so God, give us your spirit. Give us your word. Give us a vision of how big and amazing you are, that our eyes would never move from what Jesus has done for us and that that would give us all the faith in the world to go out and glorify you, to multiply disciples and churches and to reach the next generation. It's in your son's mighty name that I pray, amen.